Ramanasu. So we come to our last day in the second cycle to focus on the settling the mind in its natural state. So it is, again, a very simple practice. I've been unpacking it step by step, kind of taking it apart. And now in this session this morning, let's uh, come back to the utter simplicity of the practice, but including all the aspects of it, with a really strong emphasis on, first of all, settling and the stillness of your own awareness. Kind of come home first, right? After settling body, speech, and mind, just come home and just have that sense. Often in our one-on-one meetings, uh, I'll just kind of interrupt the conversation and have a little pause, okay, for five seconds, for ten seconds. Now let's just be present. You don't need to do anything special. You don't need to find a special posture or anything. And it's so easy. I think we've all found that. That when you just, like right now, Oh, it's so easy. There's no preparation for it. You know, you're there. And so to come to that, to taste it, to rest in that stillness, to know it, to rest there, to really know stillness, and then let this light of your awareness illuminate the space of the mind, the space of mind itself, so you're cognizant of that space, not just spacing out or just sitting there with a blank mind which all the schools of Tibetan Buddhism, I think all schools of Buddhism say, that's not meditation, just sitting there with a blank mind. That's not meditation, sitting there with a blank mind. But ascertaining that sheer vacuity, that space of the mind, and then ascertaining the emergence of thoughts, of these more objective appearances, ascertaining the emergence of subjective impulses, desires, emotions, intentions, and so forth, but all from this kind of a space-like awareness that is just so so soft, not dull, not vague, but soft in the sense of not tight, not hard, like space itself, and simply being present with whatever comes up. Such a simple practice. But also as we are now coming to the end of our sixth week, not quite ready, not quite time yet to prepare for coming out. We have another, let's say, another good week to really just be here now. We'll have a week of transition. But, of course, in the back of the mind, it's got to be there that this is really kind of a shamat environment we're in here. It's a very unusual environment, and it's a very temporary environment, right? But for most, if not all of us, the environment that we'll be, be heading out to, the sequence, the variety of environments, will be a lot busier than what we're experiencing here, and the type of people we encounter will not be so homo- homogenous. From my experience, and I'm, and, uh, from my experience uh, there's a, a, a delightful quality of homogeneity here. That is really all of my encounters with you have been entirely pleasant. There's been never a moment of rudeness, not from your side. I hope not from my side. I'm doing my best. Um, but to, and then, of course, a shared vision. We're all here for the sake of Dharma. And then, in all of the engagements, every year that I've come here with all of the staff, they're just invariably pleasant, you know. And so, well, that's not true everywhere, <laughs> as I recall, right? And so, in anticipation of venturing out into a more diverse world than to be able to maintain that stillness, that stillness of your own awareness, that's relaxed, that's not clenched tight, withdrawal, dissociated. Not that at all, of course, you know this now. But that stillness of awareness. So that when you're engaging in a very busy environment, like Phuket Airport, just for starters, everything is coming and going there. Nobody comes there to stay. Right? Even the staff there are going there just to work and then they're coming home again. 
And so everything's in motion. Everybody has their, their, their desires. They're going here. They don't really want to be there. They want to be somewhere else. That's why they came here, to go elsewhere. And to be in the midst of that, that type of activity. And then on and on it goes. And then meeting with people who will be displaying a wide variety of behavior, including towards yourself. And whatever is said, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether virtuous or unvirtuous, coming from other people's lives, that all of this is taking place in the space of your mind. Of course, I'm not talking about solipsism, but you know that by now. But that's where all the appearances are arising, right? Because we're not seeing any appearances outside the space of our own minds, right? It's quite clear, right? And so there you are attending the people in your surrounding environment, each one the center of his or her own mandala, at the same time all appearing in the space of your own mind. So however people treat you, how, what kind of, whatever kind of adversities, felicities, situations arise, to be able to maintain that stillness of awareness, to be totally present, totally present, not at all withdrawn, not at all entering into an I-it relationship with any sentient being, but totally present. Tremendous boon. And then it's not only being simply present with the other people coming up, but as, of course, we now we have these, object, these subjective surges coming up, right? Not only the appearances of the people, the environment, situations we encounter objectively, but in this whole entangled web that we call our lives, being aware of what are the subjective impulses, being aware of those in the course of a conversation, while driving, while in business plays, while during entertainment and so forth. What are the subjective impulses? And not simply being those subjective impulses, not entering unconsciously, into the cognitive fusion with the desires, emotions, and so forth, but having a spaciousness that you're aware of. them, And then there can be some very gentle, very wise and loving discernment. There's an impulse. Is that one to act on? Or maybe not. There's a desire. There's an emotion. Is that something I want to share with the world? Is that going to be my offering of the, of the moment? Or maybe that's something better to keep to myself, like a sneeze or a passing wind. Maybe better to keep to myself, and if I have to let it out, let it out in privacy. You know? so, so there's the practice. So let's come back to the core, and that is the very first step is that just recognition, the sheer recognition of the difference between stillness and motion. You know about that. And then what we'll be really cultivating in the session to come, which will be an unguided silent meditation, is doing our very best from moment to moment with no goals, no aspiration, not leaping to the future, without hope or fear in the present moment, to the best of our ability, maintaining a flow of the first type of mindfulness, single-pointed mindfulness, which entails the simultaneity, right? Somebody tell me, what's the simultaneity of what? Rhonda? If you don't know, it's no big deal. I'm putting it in the spot. Don't, no big deal. The first type of mindfulness. Simultaneity. Mi it's called single mind. And, and what's its characteristic? Exactly right, yeah. I put people on the spot only when I give you a great big allowance. If you say something wrong, it's no big deal. You just probably learn better that way. That's why I do it. But yes, thumbs up for Rhonda. <laughs> a, little, a little hand for Rhonda. So there we are. It's certainly that. It, it is the stillness of your own awareness simultaneously. That is the mindfulness, the attentiveness. The recognition of the stillness of your own awareness simultaneously with the movements of the mind. The stillness of the space of the mind. 
simultaneously with the movements of thoughts, images, and so forth within that space. So that, that, do, that twofold connotation. Without further ado, jump in and enjoy. But see how relative, relevant, enormously relevant this is to be able to come out into the world and maintain that quality of awareness. Right. Tremendously helpful. Really such a boon. So let's do it. So yesterday we looked at what are called the state effects, just to use a modern term, of the qualities of the experiences while you're simply resting in shamatha, having, having already achieved it. And I do, as a person with a religious studies background, but also a scientific background, find it interesting and very significant that these multiple sources from the Theravada source, where they're really dealing with Pali, a different language, and then very early Sanskrit sources, Matricheta, uh, from the, what was it, the first, first century, second, second century of the Common Era, uh, and then right on through to Vasubandhu and Asanga, Buddha Gosa, again the Pali tradition, then into the Tibetan tradition, and these two mighty figures, um, and that is Tsongkhapa with his vast erudition, incredible, he's like a Sakya Pandita, there's this vast erudition, and being so fully, so thoroughly conversant with this whole, gosh, well, 1,500 years or so uh, of Indian Buddhism, you know, and just this, like, just knowing it all, having this panoramic vision, and drawing from that and incorporating these into his own teachings, so it's not sim- but it's relying so heavily uh, on these, these great pillars, these great adepts of India, going back to Nagarjuna, and of course the Buddha. And so here's one who is really representing an embodiment of the whole tradition, but then adding his own genius to it. Uh, and having studied from, with so many masters from all of the schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So that's Tsongkhapa, really paradigmatic. And then something so different, but complementary, is Jujum Lingba, who didn't have a single teacher, not one single human lama, but he had multiple teachers, but all in these pure visions. You know? So, I mean, really, about as, in terms of great lamas, about as different from Tsongkhapa as you can imagine. And yet, when it comes to shamatha and many other points, they're coming to exactly the same point. All of his teachings were from Padmasambhava and these other great adepts, but all in a visionary context. But when we, when we look at, well, what's shamatha like? What's the experience? And so forth, we feel, find this complete congruity, complete harmony. So I find that, that juxtaposition from the early Theravada tradition, the very early Indian Buddhist tradition, through the classic era of, of Asanga, Vasubandhu, into the, into the Tibetan tradition, and then emphasizing Tsongkhapa and Dujum Lingbo, or Padmasambhava, uh, enormously compelling and inspiring. That's my view. Uh, so that's the state effect. But then, if it were only something really nice, like kind of like taking dope or LSD or something, the, the trip is really nice, but when the, when the drug wears off, then it's kind of like back to normal, then this would be kind of a really pleasant outing, you know, like a little vacation. Then you'd always want to go back on vacation, kind of like a narcotic. You'd want to come back to the, the heroin high of shamatha. Uh, but happily, that's not at all the case. Not at all the case. Uh, one of the tremendous boons or reasons for cultivating and eventually achieving shamatha is what really deep shifts takes place in your body and mind that linger on, that just carry on, that become your new baseline. I like, the, I like the phrase, your new base camp for ascending to the summits of awakening. You have an entirely new base camp now because your body is radically shifted. That whole alchemy of the body that's going to carry on right through the stage of generation, the stage of completion, texture, tutgel, and so forth, radical t- transmutation of the body, well, this is the first big benchmark. This is the first really big one. There are a lot of, as many of you know, there are a lot of shifts of prana, surging of prana, 
pressure building up, flowing, sometimes surges of bliss, all kinds of these nyam appear, and then they go away along the nine stages. But when you come to the ninth stage and then you achieve shamatha, a real state shift takes place, as we've seen from the discussion yesterday. Your prana system is now working like it's never worked before. And your mind, your coarse mind, arising independence upon the prana system, your subtle mind arising in a relationship to the subtle pranas, which are now flowing so smoothly, you've got a new base camp, right? And so what's the evidence of that in between sessions? It's enormously important, because you see, this is a whole shift of your whole way of being, and not just a really delicious outing that you can slip into whenever you want to, remain for hours on end effortlessly. So what are the trade effects? The occur- First of all, the occurrence of afflictive thoughts and emotions such as hatred is feeble and of brief duration. Uh, so I'll just read the second one. For the most part, the five obscurations, sensual craving, malice, laxity and dullness, excitation and anxiety, and uncertainty do not arise. So those are really basically coming to the same point. Uh, the five obscurations, which obscure what? No, I'll just say it. The substrate, the substrate consciousness, yeah. That natural purity, not an ultimate purity, but the natural luminosity, the natural purity that is ongoing. Both the Theravada and the, and the Sanskrit tradition say that, that light's always there. You know. It simply is veiled by you know, the obscurations, the mental afflictions. Well, in between sessions now, these five obscurations, they hardly arise. You've not gotten rid of them. You're all clear on that point. But they're kind of disabled. You know, they're kind of like crippled. They're kind of like, oh, what hit me? Oh, I guess it must have been shamatha, you know? And your other just general mental afflictions, craving, attachment, craving, hostility, and so jealousy and so forth. You know, this is just completely common sense. And that is if you're experiencing this just ongoing sense of well-being in the body and in the mind, you can slip into shamatha and experience bliss kind of whenever you want to, really. Then what actually out there are you going to be attached to? Oh, people think I'm really good. Oh, man. Okay, whatever. Oh, I've got a whole bunch of money here. Okay, cool. I can do maybe I can do something with that. That could be helpful. Mm. I've got a lot of power. Wow, I know I do. It's over my mind. You know, the normal allures that catch so many people caught in the snare like a fly in a spider web, catch them. You know, catch us. Not it's not some other people, but catch us in the snare of samsara of thinking, this will make me happy, that person, if I only had that, and then some obstacle comes in, and then we get angry, and then retaliation comes up. So much of the crud of samsara in the desire realm is all coming of banking on, investing ourselves in that, and that, and that. I hope this doesn't happen, I hope that doesn't happen. But you're sitting on a gold mine. You know, you're sitting, you're resting in your own awareness, the natural purity, the bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality of your own awareness. So, of course, you're not going to have any real strong pulls for anything in the desire realm. The only real pull for you now is the bliss, luminosity, and and non-conceptuality of your own substrate consciousness. That's a pull. But you can see then, where would your anger be coming for the outside world? Well, it's it's there, it can come up, you know, but it's going to be much, much less. So... There's that. Now, in terms of clarity, that vividness, you've just tapped right into this kind of relative wellspring of luminosity or clarity. The sense of attentional clarity is so great, you, you feel that you could count the atoms of the pillars and walls of your house. So this simply says high res, high definition. And it happened. A number of you are starting to get this already. 
and that is sounds and sight especially, but also tactile sensation. But for that matter, smells and taste, everything. It's kind of like everything got into high definition. If you use the light analogy, then it's like high wattage, like, whoa, everything's brighter. What did I take? Oh, yeah, I took a great big dose of shamatha, and it's not wearing off, you know. So that luminosity that you're tapping right into the wellspring of it, the source of it, when you're resting in this self-illuminating substrate consciousness, well, of course, that doesn't, that doesn't dim when you step off the cushion and you're engaging with the world around you. So everything's brighter, livelier, high definition. Reality is a trip, you know. And so, and, and feeling as, as you, know, you can't really, he's, he's not... He's not saying you can actually count the atom. And of course, the Buddhist notion of atoms is not identical to that of modern physics. We want to make no mistake there. Uh, nevertheless, they are tiny, really, really tiny. Uh, something like one, what was it? I can't remember exactly, but one-seventh of one-seventh of the size of a mote of dust. Well, if you take, compare that to an atom or to an elementary particle, they're orders and orders of magnitude different. Um, but there it is. That was um, experiential atoms. That which you can actually perceive with direct mental perception uh, from samadhi. Uh, but in any case, I think you get the picture. In terms of the stillness, the stability of attention, what's, what's the spill over into post-meditative experience? Due to attentional stability, you feel as if your sleep was, was suffused with samadhi and many uh, pure dream appearances take place. So here... A lot of you, maybe all of you in principle, are interested in lucid dreaming, bringing greater clarity, cognizance to your dreams, and for that matter, why not, to deep sleep. This sets you up for it. So if some of you have not had much success with lucid dreaming, don't worry about it. It's always secondary. Some of you are gifted. You're having them every week. That's fine. It's good. Cool. But this is setting you up for it. So you think there is something of a sequence here. If you're naturally gifted, cool, use it. And that's why I've been always happy to mentor any of you in your practice of lucid dreaming, dream yoga, in our one-on-one -on -one sessions. But I've not strongly emphasized it here. Because if we're really focusing on the seven-point mind training and the shamatha, you're doing everything you need, and you're going to be so set up as your mind becomes more still, well, relaxed, still, and, cl and clear, that uh, especially when you achieve shamatha, then lucid dreaming is going to be a piece of cake, we say in America. It's going to be easy, because that samadhi flows right into the dream state. Okay? Falling asleep lucidly, no big deal. So the stillness. And then when the attention is settled inwardly, meditative equipoise and physical and mental pliancy arise very swiftly. So it's easy in, easy out. You can, re you can go right back into medita meditative state when you wish. When you rise from meditative equipoise, you still experience some degree of physical and mental pliancy. So again, this lightness of the body, the suppleness, like an eel, like an otter, just the whole thing, the whole body-mind system, it's supple, it's buoyant, it's, it's light, it's flexible. And one person, when I, when I started my kind of serious shamatha practice many, many years ago, uh, His Holiness told me of this Geshe Nima, a Galukpa Lama, who had unequivocally, clearly, definitely achieved it. And he made the comment that, um, that it was just like your body feels so light, you feel as if you could jump over mountains. It's kind of like, yeah, I think I could. Well, oh, no, I can't. Okay, but it felt like I could. You know? So that's that kind of lightness, okay? Uh, that's, yeah. That's why if you see the, uh, the, the classic depiction of the elephant, the rabbit, the monkey, and the, and the monk in the, you know, the winding road to shamatha, the end of it, the monk just kind of holds up his robe and flies into the sky. If it's a really good, it's real good marketing. It's a good, it's good marketing point, you know? Like, oh, good, I want to get a robe like that, you know? Um, 
But if you're kind of hoping that you could fly like Superman when you achieve shamatha, uh, let me know if that works out. You know. But actually, that was a metaphor. It, that was not quite literal. You have to do other practices to do that. But I do recall, who was it? It was His Holiness. His Holiness said that he, he learned of one nun. This was, not, this was in the 20th century. One man, I think back in Kham, but one accomplished nun, and uh, she was just seen regularly flying back and forth over the valley. You know? What's that? There was a nun on television. What was the flying nun or something? Remember that? Based on, based on reality? Woo. We should have more flying nuns. I'd like to watch them. Hola, so. I'd actually like to be one. Oh, yeah. So, and, you're, and then you're just, this is kind of obvious. Your attention is highly focused throughout all your daily activities. Very cool. When you're inactive, when you just kind of rest, your mind slips into, the space, into a space-like state of awareness. There's a remarkable parallel there. This isn't a waking state. But when you just pause, then you just, you just kind of do it like just slip right into shamatha in a kind of space-like awareness. Well, there's a strong parallel with dreaming, whether lucid or non-lucid. But let's take the example of a lucid dream. And that is, uh, if you're in the midst of a dream, again, either way, and you simply stop engaging with the dream, you simply are not paying attention visually, or any, with any of your physical senses, and you simply stop and be still. Within really a matter of seconds, the whole dreamscape will vanish. Because it's perpetuated through grasping. Your dream is perpetuated through grasping. That is engaging with it, looking at it, labeling, responding to it, feeling it, hoping and fearing and so forth. That keeps it going. Does that sound familiar? That's how samsara continues, isn't it? And then on the ultimate level, as Genlam Rimba said, this incredible yogi, he said, through the practice of vipassana, so we're going to another level here, but through the, you remember this? He said, in the practice of vipassana, when you, having realized the absence of inherent nature of all phenomena, there has to be that, and then with that recognition, when you withdraw all conceptual designation, you just really allow your mind to go still, and now deeply still, beyond shamatha still, to vipassana still, from your perspective, the whole world vanishes. You're the center of your mandala now. The whole of this holographic universe all dissolves into dharmadhatu. And all you realize is emptiness. You know, you're in now meditative, space-like meditative equipoise, realizing emptiness. That's what an Arya Bodhisattva does on the cushion. But the withdrawal of all conceptual designation is actually crucial for that. But now this, for the yogi, it's not for us, I'm just saying words, but for the yogi, this is absolute, unequivocal proof that all phenomena arise independent upon conceptual designation. Because with you, in the center of your mandala, when you stop designating them, they stop existing for you. Of course, you're not killed anybody. Nothing's out. Everybody's in the center of their own mandala. So similarly here, just on the shamatha level, we're back in kindergarten again, right, driving a little VW bug, but it's a very good bug. When you just rest, then your mind just naturally slips into space-like awareness. And of course, that's just the awareness of substrate. You experience an unprecedented fitness of the body and mind, that you're naturally inclined towards virtue. So this is that whole issue of the prashrapta, it's called in Sanskrit. The suppleness, the buoyancy, the lightness, the absence of dysfunction. It's called nengenlen or daushtulya in Sanskrit. Daushtulya. Sounds like a villain in a good, creepy scientific, uh, science fiction movie. Daushtulya is coming. Get out your weapons. He's dangerous. 
Prashrapta, help us. Prashrapta. <laughs> it works for me. So you're naturally inclined to virtue. I mean, we're naturally inclined to unvirtue when we feel crappy. Right? When we feel dissatisfied, feel restless, feel bored, then we want something to make us happy. And then we go out on a you know, hunter-gatherer approach with craving, hostility, craving, attachment, clinging, greed, and so forth. I'm not happy. Who can make me happy? What's going to make me happy? Where can I go to be happy? Where's a happy place? Disneyland's the happiest place in the world? I'm going. You know? So, then we are. And then when we're feeling really crappy, we're feeling depressed, we're kind of wondering, who made me depressed? I think it's probably you, or this place, or my spouse, or my job, or that political party, or whatever. You know, and there, there we are, you know? But if your body and mind just feel supple, light, buoyant, there's a sense of well-being that saturates your body and mind, uh, then it's much, much easier to practice virtue. It comes naturally. It's easy. So that's good. And then here's one from, most of that is from Tsongkhapa's uh, brilliant account, definitive accounts, in his, in his, especially in his two great Lamrams. Here's one from Lama, Lama Mipam Rinpoche, 19th century, again, this polymath, Renaissance man in the Nyingma tradition. He says, due to bodily fitness or serviceability, there is no feeling of physical heaviness or discomfort. The spine becomes straight like a golden pillar and the body feels blissful as if it were bathed with warm milk. I've never tried that. It kind of sounds interesting. I might want yogurt with honey, but I don't know. That'll be a special spa. That'll be a shamatha spa, you know, to give you bath with warm milk and then feed it to your puppy afterwards. And so that's the, that's the physical fitness, or, I mean, it's physical fitness. What do you call it? And then due to mental, phys mental fitness, you are now fully in control of your mind, so you are virtually free of sadness and grief and continuously experience a state of well-being. That's your baseline. That's just your normal state. When nothing's happening to you, this is genuine happiness. Because there's nothing happening to you to make you feel, you know, make you happy. What good happened? Oh, nothing. I'm just sitting here in my gray room eating rice broth. And I'm so happy. You know? That's it. It's genuine. So that's clear. The fitness of the body and mind is coarse at first, but then become subtle, which is superior, for you are now perfectly prepared for more advanced levels of contemplative training. Uh, it's now said that you have a mind. Before, your mind kind of had you, you know, like that poor dog. It's, it's, it's fiction, so I'm not going to feel sad about this, but in Little Miss Sunshine, you remember the dog that was tied to the back of the station wagon? And then they forgot about the dog and drove off? That dog doesn't have a station wagon. Right? Is the image coming clearly to mind? They're driving, and the little doggy is, has the, and can't run that fast? That doggy doesn't have a station wagon. The station wagon has a doggy. And so, as long as the mind is dysfunctional, prone to all the stuff you've been seeing coming up, you don't have a mind. The mind has you. And sometimes you may feel like the doggy being dragged behind at 50 miles an hour. You can't run that fast. Right? Achieve shamatha. You've got, you've, got, you've got a mind. You use it as you wish, creatively, daydreaming, analytically, remembering, discursive meditation, visualization, dzogchen meditation. You have a mind such that when you say mind, jump. The mind says, how far? The mind that does what you want it to do. That's what it would have been nice to be born with. 
but we weren't. So we have some remedial work to you know, recall the mind from the one we were born with, where it's out of control and we don't have an owner's manual. This tells you how to operate your mind and then how to actually own one. So there we go. So those are the state effects. One final point before we depart, and that is in all forms of shamatha, but especially the one that we've been exploring this week, uh, stuff comes up. It's supposed to come up. You saw the two, signs, the two pages of signs of experience. Uh, you know what it's like. You've heard it many times now, and a number of you are experiencing this in varying degrees, of the dredging of the psyche and the symptoms that come up, sometimes intensely unpleasant, disturbing, troubling, sometimes negative, I mean really afflictive, Especially when stuff comes up dredging early memories, depression, sadness, fear, anxiety, uh, resentment, hostility, craving, and so forth. Sometimes it can be very overwhelming. We all know that. And so what to do? Well, of course, in the best of all possible worlds, it would come up and you'll simply rest in the stillness of your awareness and whatever is coming up. It's, a, you know, it's... It's Godzilla, it's whatever, whatever awful thing is coming up, subjectively or objectively in terms of appearances. It, the, the first answer is stay the course. Trust yourself. It's not trusting me or let up Lingba Tsongkhapa. I mean, that's all good. But above all, can you trust your own body-mind that if you simply are present with it, it will unravel, dissolve, dissolve back in the space of the mind. But of course, we know that's sometimes difficult. And so when you find, that's not working out so well. This is really hard. I'm, that's not working out. I know what I should be doing. I'm not doing it. I'd like to, but I can't. It keeps on swallowing me up, drawing me into its vortex. It's really getting to me. So what to do? What to do is the other part of this retreat. How about Tonglen? Are you the only, if it's grief, if it's sadness, if it's anger, if it's terror, uh, you think you're the only person experiencing such things? Are you getting this only because you're a Buddhist meditator or you're practicing shamatha? Of course not. You're surrounded by a world where this is happening every single day to millions if not billions of people, right? So how about some tonglen here? How about some loving kindness for yourself here? Right? So there's this whole array of practices. The practices we'll, that we did yesterday afternoon, the one we'll do now really slipping back to my relief and perhaps to yours into just good old-fashioned dharma. I'm going to kind of kiss the 21st century goodbye this afternoon and just get back to just our text and some very traditional practice. But now we've kind of built a fortress around that practice so that we see, hey, this is, a, is, this is. And here was the point. Some of you enjoyed it. Probably some of you didn't so much, the afternoon lecture for the last three days. But the point of it was this teaching, these practices, the theories and the practices are as legitimate. They have the same integrity now that they did a thousand years ago. And I believe that with every fiber of my being, you know. So there it is. But so that was kind of, that was your armor to bring you back into the 21st century when we leave here. That this has enormous intellectual credibility. Enormous. It's intimidating, in, 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 uh, it, you know, the integrity of it. But coming back to this, we have the, so we'll go into a traditional practice this afternoon, as I mentioned yesterday, which is really quite glorious. An Eno enormous blessing can flow through it has been attested by centuries and centuries of practitioners, great yogis as well as ordinary lay people. But bring these in. So we have the whole, the whole, we have the whole skillful mean side of the Donglen practice. Everything in the seven-point mind training is designed to help you through those points when you get really caught, snagged 
and whatever's coming up in your meditative practice. It's all designed to help you with that, right? A therapist may be also helpful. They have their wisdom. They have a lot of experience, you know, and, and if they have compassion, then very, very good. So important, right? But then we all also have the, the sword of Manjushri, and that is when this stuff comes up, you don't, you can, you're not limited to just being present with it. You can take a real interest in it and investigate, probe into it, factors of origina origination. How is it present? How does it dissolve? Take it like, you know, with boldness and investigate it, understand it, its origins, its nature, its impact, understand it. And through understanding, it will dissolve. It will dissolve. And you'll be getting to the root. So we have in this eight weeks, thanks to the blessings of Atisha and the many teachers of taught shamatha, the seven-point mind training, we're coming out here, if, we are, if we're assimilating, integrating, remembering, and applying the wonderful teachings from these texts and these sources, then when we leave here, we can be extremely well-equipped to deal with whatever comes up, whether on the meditative cushion or while engaging in all kinds of situations. And we have, and never mind me, I'm not a big deal. I don't think I'm much inspiration. Sorry, I don't admire myself so much. But the teachers do, the teachings do, do enormously. So look right through the teacher and consider what's behind this. I mean, it's absolutely awesome. And if my own teacher is just one step removed from me, if Yang Tanabuchi, he can trans transmute for 22 years a concentration camp, that should give us some courage that we can transmute whatever comes our way. If Kumabashi can lose everything, including his own children, and come out serene, peaceful, cheerful, and utterly benevolent every single day, living on $30 a month, if he can do that, that's where these teachings come from. Then why can't we? You know? That's where the inspiration comes from. Yeah? So enjoy your day. See you at 4.30.